When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on Egypt. filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. <laughs> Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth 
was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and Miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One day, Peter and John... The church is born. Now, our video tries to do the best it can, but, you know, over 3,000 were saved, so that little crowd there was just, you know, not, not even close to what was there. Probably the streets were filled and the, the place was thronged and people wanted to know what was going on. They were attracted to it. So Peter's sermon heats up here and he delivers it and he kind of gives this one-two punch of prophetic fulfillments. He's going to talk about David and what David promised prophetically. And he's going to talk about the personal responsibility we have for Jesus' death on the cross. Now that might seem like a new idea. You think, I wasn't there. I, I didn't drive him there. I didn't put the nails in his hand. But the truth is is all of our sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. Come on, can I get an amen? He loved us so much, he couldn't allow us to remain in our sin. Why? Because the wages of sin are death. Without the cross, we're lost and it's hopeless. But with the cross, there's hope. And so he, he, he does, you know, this kind of montage here where it kind of seems like the things he's sticking in there, you know, maybe don't make sense, but they make sense for this crowd. Peter knew his audience. And he's really preaching the simplicity of the gospel, yet he embellishes it in a few ways. And the, you can see the structure in there. It's Jesus died, Jesus rose, believe, repent, and be saved. It's the simplicity of the gospel, except he embellishes it, and it's because of his audience there he wants to convince. Him. Now in verses 22 and 23, he basically says, listen up. And he wants to tell him, you've heard about Jesus and you know about the signs and the wonders. Everybody knew about Jesus and they knew about his miracles and they knew that they crucified him. They knew that because of those signs, wonders, and miracles, that he wasn't an ordinary man, that he was from God. So the crowd had a basis there for him to start from, and he starts from there. It was God's plan all along to deliver Jesus to the cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Uh, historically, people have blamed other people groups for killing Jesus. Have you ever heard stuff like that? They'll say, oh, the Jews, they're Christ killers, or you know, the Romans nailed him there, or it was this group of people. The truth is nobody killed Jesus. He laid down his life willingly. Nobody took his life. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly to please the Father. He did it and to save us. So he, he, he's there and he's, you know, he's constructing this idea for them. Uh, it says here in verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. I want you to see that. Jesus Christ was not an anomaly. It wasn't an accident. His death on the cross wasn't at the hands of sinful men. It was God's predetermined plan. Jesus submitted to the Father's plan. It said, we all share some personal responsibility for his death. Look what it says. You nailed to a cross. This Jesus, he says to the crowd. Now, I don't know about you, but when you got a big crowd there, you, you probably should be careful not to incite them. And right away, he goes for the throat. He says, you nailed him to the cross. You nailed him there by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Well, see, he's really making that point there. What's the point for us today? The point is we bear personal responsibility for Jesus' death. Why? Because we're all sinners, and we needed a Savior, and he was willing to do it for us. Uh, verse 24, death, hell, and the grave couldn't hold Jesus, and that point is made. Uh, it says, but God raised him up again, uh, pu putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by the power of it. Basically saying the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Why? Because he was fully God and fully man. We go into the grave, the grave can hold us. We die, death can hold us. 
You notice people who have died a long time ago, do you notice anything about them? They're still dead. <laughs> Scott says it all the time. Is he dead? Oh yeah, he's still dead. Because the grave can hold us, but the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Why? Because he was fully God and fully man. He didn't stay in that borrowed tomb for long. He's risen. You know, and that's why, you know, that's why we don't serve a dead God. Come on, church. We serve a risen God. We don't serve a, a dead ideology. We serve a living God. You know, many times I see people, you know, talk about Jesus and, you know, like they'll wear a cross with Jesus on it. Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's alive. Come on, are there any Christians here tonight? Amen. So he's risen and death couldn't hold him. Hell couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. We'll talk about all of what he did in that short time when he, you know, he, he, he did some things when he wasn't on the cross and in the grave, and we'll get to that at some other point, but uh, the next 11 verses, verses 25 through 36, Peter mentions the fulfillment of King David's prophetic word. Now, here you got all these people there, you're talking about Jesus, you're giving them the gospel, you seem to be off to a good start, and it seems like he downshifts and starts talking about David a whole lot. Why in the world is he doing that? Now, I don't know about you, but when I discovered I was a sinner and needed a savior, I didn't want to talk about King David. But yet he does. And see, Peter understands his audience here. They're Jews. And every Jew know that the Messiah had to come through David's line. And so it was very important for them that if they were going to consider this man Jesus to be the Savior, they had to know his pedigree because the prophets told them for centuries where this guy was going to come from. And it wasn't just from anywhere. It had to come through the line of David. So right away, he shifts into that gear and he starts talking about King David there and making, making points about him. Um, you know, one of the most compelling uh, proofs of scripture and the authenticity of scripture is fulfilled prophetic prophecy. There are hundreds and hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills completely in what he did in the New Testament. And they were given hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before the coming of Christ. Yet Jesus fits the exact bill of what the prophets said he would be, what he would do, right down to where they would kill him, right down to where he'd be pierced, he'd, be, he'd have water come out of his side. I mean, if you study these things, it's incredible. You either have to be intellectually dishonest or you, or you just, you know, you, you don't want to see the truth there. But it's so obvious that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah that the prophets talked about for centuries. And he takes the time to make that construct here for the Jews because he's preaching to them and they're right in front of him. There are other people there, but Peter is very focused on the Jews. Remember this idea of Gentiles being saved doesn't really get solidified till the apostle Paul takes the baton from Peter and starts evangelizing the Gentiles, okay? So Peter's focused on the Jews. He's speaking to them. Um, and, and he does. And, and David says of him in verses 25 through 28, these are the points that he made. Jesus was at the right hand of God. So what does that mean? He was preexistent. Before he came to earth, he was. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Come on, you know the scripture, right? So he, he makes a case for the preexistence of Christ. He was the hope of all mankind, he says in verse 26. In verse 27, 27 the prophet said that he wouldn't leave him in the grave. David made a big point of this. He wouldn't leave him in the grave. He wouldn't be in Hades or hell. It says that he would not taste decay. And that's another important thing. He's saying he would not allow his holy one to suffer decay. Come on, you see how the Old Testament prophets are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And Peter's making that point. And, and these things, you know, the crowd is considering them. In verse 28, um, look in verse 28. It says, you have made known to me the ways of life, David said. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. You know, so Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. David's talking about him hundreds of years before. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The more you dig into this, the more you see Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And he's exactly who the prophets promised. But the crowd is just getting this and, and Peter's building the case. Now in verse 29 through 31, uh, Peter hints why he's referencing David. David's prophetic writings in the Psalms were a fulfillment of Jesus Christ embracing the cross. And I said every Jew knew what Peter was talking about. And they were very interested at this point because he had just built a case for this man Jesus who had been crucified being the Messiah. In verse 31, it says that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection. See, that's what David did. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross, and they died in faith. Hebrews talks about all of them that died in faith. Moses and Aaron and, you know, David and all these Old Testament patriarchs, Jacob and uh, Isaac. And you see, well, you know, well, how, how did they taste of salvation? They looked forward to the cross, and they died in faith. And so he makes that point as well. Verse 32, the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And this is an important point as well, that these guys are now, Jesus said what? You know, wait for the Holy Spirit and, and you're gonna be my witnesses. Do you remember that? Okay, so the Holy Spirit's come, Peter steps up, he's preaching, he's witnessing for Christ. All the apostles are being his witnesses, uh, Jesus' words being fulfilled right there. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. That was one of the prerequisites to be an apostle. Remember, the apostle Paul didn't walk and see Jesus, but he had an encounter with Jesus on that Damascus road, you remember? Jesus knocked him to the ground and blinded him, and he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. So Every apostle had, had an experience, an eyewitness account uh, with the resurrected Christ. Now, this again is another compelling proof of scripture. Why? Because these apostles who testified about Jesus would not recant their testimony or change their testimony or say we were just kidding, even in the face of brutal persecution and horrible death. Every one of the apostles were brutally martyred. They, they were boiled in oil. Peter was hung, crucified upside down. Some of them were beheaded, uh, I mean, stoned to death. The only one that survived was John, the beloved. John was boiled in oil and it didn't kill him. Tough guy. And he went on to write the book of Revelation. So each one of these apostles would not recant even in the face of death. Listen to me. People say, well, the, you know, Jesus' resurrection was just a hoax. Who would die for a hoax? Who would allow themselves to be boiled in oil? Who would allow themselves to be beheaded as Paul was? Who would die for a hoax? Nobody would die for a lie. They would only die for the truth. Wow. So many things for us to consider about the apostles and the ministry as it's being kicked off here. The church is in its infant stage. Uh, Jesus, not David, ascended into heaven and this is mentioned in verses 34 through 36. Verse 36 is the concluding statement that galvanizes Peter's whole point here. He, he references David. He says, this is the reason I just said all that stuff about David. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. 
Ouch. Wow. Powerful concluding statement to that point of his message. Now, verses 34 through 47 show the response here. And I want you to notice something. We don't preach just to preach. We don't teach just to teach. We don't come together and talk about God's word just so we get an inflated you know, sense of theology and, and puff ourselves up with knowledge. We do this, uh, we preach the word, we teach the word, we sit under the word. Why? So that it would have an effect on us. Come on, church, are you alive out there tonight? Amen. Oh, I didn't come to change. I just came to listen. No, we, we, the Bible says that we shouldn't be hearers of the word only, but doers, amen. So we don't come just to listen. We come to change. Peter preaches this message, and it, it effectuates a change. There's a response here, and that's what we want. You know, it's not like you're preaching, you close the Bible, you drop the mic, and everybody goes home. There needs to be a response, and in this situation, in these next 10 verses, there is a powerful response. Uh, verse 37, they were convicted by the truth. And look what it says, that they were pierced in their heart. That, that's a powerful thing, uh, the response there. And that, that's kind of what we're looking for. It says, now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Wow, what a response there. First of all, I want to talk about the pierced in the heart part. You see, what Peter spoke was from the Lord, and it, and it, and it touched a nerve in them. It hit them where they lived, and they saw with clarity that what he was saying was true, and so it provoked a response from them. Now, this idea of being pierced to the heart is what the scripture calls conviction. When we hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit shows us something that we never saw before that requires us to embrace change, we get convicted. How many people have been convicted? <laughs> of, a, of a felony or a mis... No. <laughs> All of the above. You know... Our conviction comes when we see the truth, when we see the light, when our eyes open up. Maybe, you know, you've lived a certain way, you've behaved a certain way, you've treated people a certain way, and then one day the Lord shows you that's the wrong way to behave, and, and you, you feel a brokenness over that, amen? I remember when I, as a young teenager, I shared my testimony with you when I first realized I was lost and I needed a Savior. There was such a brokenness there and a hunger. Why? Because I was convicted. You know, some people don't like to feel convicted, but listen, being convicted is a good thing because it shows our hearts are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. If, if you can hear truth and, 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 and hear something that requires change and just go, nah, I'm not doing it, and your heart's really hard, that's a bad spot to be in. But if your heart's soft enough to be convicted, it's a blessing. Now, listen to me. Conviction leads us to godly sorrow, which leads us to repentance. And then when we repent, God can forgive us of our sins and change us, amen? So conviction is a good thing. The opposite of conviction is condemnation. It didn't say that the crowd felt condemnation. Do you know who, who condemns people? The devil. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. He, he lies, he kills, he steals. That's what he does. And he brings condemnation on people. If you've ever felt condemnation before, you know it doesn't lead to godly sorrow. It leads you to feeling really bad about yourself, and it makes you want to hide from God rather than run to God. So the Holy Spirit convicts, but the devil condemns. And condemnation drives people away from God. You know, you, have you ever heard people, you know, you, you invite them to church and they say, oh, if I walk in the building, the roof will fall down. Have people said that to you? Amen. Ever invite somebody to church? Seen pictures, heard stories? No? 
Okay, that's a person who's under condemnation. They think, well, I'm so bad, you know, the roof. And, and I, my answer to them is, we have insurance. Come on in. <laughs> we could use a new roof. This one leaks still a little bit. But, you know, that's a person under condemnation. Oh, I'm so bad, God could never. And the truth is, God loves us. There's no sin big enough. There's nothing we could do that's horrible enough that he would reject us. Why? Because Jesus' blood is powerful enough to cover it all. So when people are under condemnation, they don't want to be around God. But when the Holy Spirit convicts them, it provokes a response. And they say, what should we do? Now, that was a great response from the crowd. They didn't just go home. Oh, that was a good sermon, Peter. We'll be back next week. No, they said, what should we do? And, and that was the next logical question because they were convicted. It provoked a change. What should we do? In verse 38 and 39, Peter tells them what they should do. Now, I want to I tell you something. As a, as a good Christian, as a good leader, you and I should be able to have answers for people. Now, we can't answer every question that they have. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. Okay? So when do I say that? When you don't know. Okay, but we should have answers for certain things like how do I get forgiveness? Why did Jesus die on the cross? How can I be saved? How can I get out of the ruts in my life? We should have the basic answers for that. Yell back at me. Okay, so Peter has an answer. He has a response and it's from the Holy Spirit and it's the gospel in, it, in its simplest form. He says, repent and be baptized in Jesus' name for forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, repent, believe, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit, amen? So this is the gospel in its simplest form. You and I should understand this. We, we as people need to repent of what? Our sins, we need to be baptized for what? The remission of our sins. You know, this whole idea of baptism, the Bible has never taught anything but a believer's baptism. It's never, never one time in scripture has anyone ever baptized a baby. The Jews dedicated babies, but God never said to baptize babies. Why? Because, you know, you can do that, but that's more for the family, more for the parents. Babies don't know what's going on. You, you guys baptized me, right, when I was little? Hey, you old people over there, I'm talking to you. You baptized me when I was little, right? I don't remember. How did I do? I did good, okay. You see, it's for, it's for them. They're saying, hey, we're gonna raise this child to be a, a Christian in the church. We're gonna do our best. But the Bible teaches a believer's baptism. Why? Because only a believer can repent of their sin. Because only a believer can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And only a, a believer uh, who has the cognitive ability to understand, I need a savior and I'm a sinner can repent. So if you were dipped as a baby, great. That's a good thing. But you know, once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized again in Jesus' name for the remission of your sins. And, and all of us in this room probably were. I mean, that's something that, you know, we do as Christians. When we come to Christ, we're baptized. And then what? We receive the Holy Spirit. Every one of us, when we're saved, when we ask Christ in, receive a measure of the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare sit out there as a believer and go, I don't have any of the Holy Spirit. I have no gifts. I have no, I'm, I just, I missed out. I, I'm missed it. You got gifts. You have abilities. You have unique qualities and characters. They're all from God. Amen. Every single one of you, no excuse. We believe, we're baptized, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gives us spiritual gifts, and every one of us have unique gifts. Verse 39 
assures us that this is not a one-time thing. Some people will say, oh, well, that was just for them on that day, you know, and it was, you know, it says, for this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So it's not, it wasn't just a one-time thing. It's a generational thing. In fact, it's available to all of us in the church age that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. You guys are getting it out there. So it's a powerful moment here. Peter's message is, uh, it struck a chord and uh, they, they see, you know, that they have to make a decision. He tells them exactly what they should do. In verse 40 through 41, it says, Peter spoke to them until they made a decision. It said with many other things, he, he tried to convince them. He tried to show them. He baptized those who would repent and 3,000 out of that crowd on that day accepted Christ and were baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. What an awesome beginning to the New Testament church, amen. We've been here how many years? 38 years. We don't have 3,000 people here on Sunday morning, even if we cut, cut ourselves in half. So what an awesome day for the church. You know, what an awesome outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there again, it was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that in the last days I would pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter says some things here that, that, you know, he doesn't even understand the fullness of. He says it's for all the, those who are far off. And he didn't realize it was going to include Gentiles. We know as we study through the book of Acts, when the Gentiles started getting filled with the Holy Spirit and, and manifesting spiritual gifts, Peter's, you know, his turban loosened up a little bit. He was a, he was a little shocked about that because it had always been just for the Jews. Those were God's chosen people. The Gentiles, us Gentiles, you know, we were crazy lost, separated from God. Oh, you guys are so holy, you can't even remember that, amen? But what, a, what an awesome moment in the church there. Um, in verse 42 through 47, uh, it gives us kind of a picture of the structure and the routine of the habits of the early church. It's important for us to understand what they did in, in, in the beginning, not that we would emulate everything. It's a different time. Uh, you know, there are different seasons in the body of Christ. But basically, 43 through 45, it tells us some of the things they did. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So there was healing miracles going on. Uh, there was just a sense of awe. There was a big stir in the city. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So they began, began to come a, a body already, a family. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as one might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and they were, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's a kind of a picture of what the church did in its early you know, stages there. They were all together. Why? Because they're believers, and they were the body of Christ, so they were becoming a family. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's an important thing. They didn't just add, you know, all kinds of doctrines to the faith. They, they lived out what the apostles were teaching them. That's very important. 
The Bible talks about the apostles' doctrine. That's what the church needs to be built on. Uh, it, not just every whim of doctrine, but what was taught in the inception of the church. They fellowship together continually, and we should do that. They were in each other's homes. We should do that. They shared with each other. Did you notice what it says? They, they sold their stuff, and they gave to others as they had need. Now, this is, not, this is not Bernie Sanders here, okay? This is not socialism. This is, you know, they sold their stuff, and they gave it. Nobody took it away from them and redistributed it, okay? I just want to make that clear. So, this is a tough crowd tonight. Would you, you guys stay up late last night? Well, honesty is the best policy. But, you know, they, they shared with one another. If they saw someone in need, they gave, you know? And, and these are things that should be in the church. We should be sharing with each other. We should be breaking bread with each other. We should be fellowshipping in each other's homes, Amen. I'm not inviting myself over dinner. I'm just telling you, we should do that. Why? Because this builds intimacy. When you break bread with somebody, when you eat with them, when you laugh with them, when you, you sit on the couch and you watch a, a game together, you watch the Yankees crush their next victim. You know, I mean, it's a, there's a bonding that takes place there. Amen? Amen? Two Boston fans just died. Praise God. So this is the pattern of the early church, fellowshipping and, and, and breaking bread and developing intimacy and becoming a family. Why? Because they were the body of Christ. Now, one last thing. It said that the early church had favor. Uh, 46 and 47 is kind of a, a rapid you know, description. It says they were praising God and listen, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day as, the, as they would be saved. Okay, so I want you to see something here. In, initially, the church had favor. Now listen, they were still meeting in the synagogue because they were still practicing Jews. It's quiet now. Uh, but they had favor with everybody and they were allowed to meet in the synagogue. So there was no persecution. And persecution was coming. In fact, we're gonna see rapidly it comes upon them, but there was no persecution initially. Why? Because God put them in a protective bubble, as it were, to galvanize the pillars of the church so that the church wouldn't be crushed and scattered. But at some point, when we're comfortable there needs to come persecution because otherwise we get too comfortable and we begin to revert to our old ways. So God allowed favor to be when everybody was happy with them. Everybody liked them. Hey, you want to come in to the temple? Yeah, sure. You guys are great. We love you. Signs, wonders, and miracles. So exciting. That's going to wear off. But God allowed it to galvanize the church and to make it strong and to build that family dynamic and to build that, you know, uh, that, that, that sense of intimacy that needed to be there. So what? So they could withstand persecution when it comes. Very rapidly as we get into these chapters, we're going to see persecution hits the early church and not everybody's happy with them anymore. But God still continues to do signs, wonders, and miracles and save the lost and add to the church daily. And the thing that it says here, God did the work of adding to the church. And that's the last point I want to make tonight. You know, persecution was coming. They were in a season of favor. The new believers were seeing God add to the church daily. Whoever could be saved. Now, it wasn't slick preaching that added people to the church. It wasn't flashy suits and big cathedrals and comfortable seats or fancy buildings or flashy programs that built the church. Hello. It was the simplicity of the gospel preached in sincerity and the love that bound the disciples together that attracted people to the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something tonight as I close. 
the same thing works just fine today. Amen? We don't need all that other stuff. Oh, the church needs bigger buildings. We need better preachers. We need more money. We don't need that stuff. My goodness, if the seat gets any more cushioned, I don't know what's going to happen in here. We need the simplicity of the gospel and to love one another. That's what attracts people to come and meet Jesus and have their lives changed. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you for chapter two. I thank you for all the truth in there, all the provocative things that you put in there, all the wisdom, all the fulfillment of scripture. God, you took the time to fill Peter's mouth with the very things that would draw that crowd uh, to want to experience Christ. And Father, I pray that as believers uh, looking out in a hurting world, seeing broken people, that we would have that same compassion and love for people, that we, you would fill our mouths with things that would draw people to Christ. Father, thank you that the gospel message in its simplicity has always been enough. Jesus died, Jesus rose, repent and believe, and you'll be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Your life will be changed not by a church, not by a preacher, not by a denomination, but by Jesus Christ himself, and you can have a relationship with him. That's the gospel message. Lord, fill our mouths with it and allow us to share it with whosoever will. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Give him a hand clap of praise tonight. Amen.